Curious as to why some M&As are successful while others fail? The company may get acquired, but a few months down the line, they crash and burn. Dave Sobel, the host of the Business of Tech podcast and MSP Radio, sits down with Avidas to uncover his best do's and don'ts when performing M&A in the tech industry. Let's dive in. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Leaders Playbook. Today, my guest is Dave Sobel. Dave, I am super, super excited to have you on board. Not only is Dave a uh, very successful, outspoken uh, leader in our industry, but he also has his own very successful podcast. Uh, Dave, welcome aboard and thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Super excited for this conversation today. I am as well, Dave. I think you and I connected about a month or month and a half ago before my trip to to Europe, and we connected about a lot of different things in tech. And so I always love to hear people's stories. Like, you know, walk us through your early days. Tell us about your career and 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 how it led to to where you are now. Yeah. So it's it's funny because you know you can always start from the beginning, right? Well, I was born in a hospital, but but you but the actual bit that's that's interesting is to start right around graduation, right? So I yep. graduated with a degree in computer science from uh, William and Mary here in in Virginia. And, uh, you know, if you'd asked College Dave, I would have thought my career would be a programmer, product mm. person. Like, you would have, I, that's kind of where I thought things would go. But my first kind of two late 90s startups were a consulting firm and a, and a product place, right? And they were great late 90s tech startup kind of stuff, all enthusiasm yep. and, and direction. Uh, and both of them crashed into the wall, right? Which is which is a little bit of that the, the lessons from that time. And the second one, uh, you know, I was the lead product person. Uh, you know, we we got it all out. And and when they as they were shutting things down, they laid off all the technical team, but kept sales and management. Hmm. And the lesson I sort of took away from that was, huh? The business leaders are the ones whose jobs are protected, but I I'm smarter than those numbnuts. I can run a company into a wall just as easily as they can. Oh yeah, maybe better. So Dave. I, you know, so take that that bravado and and off I launched my first. Uh, and I had a critical decision point at that point, which was, do I go into product or did I go into services? And I actually decided I started in services because, again, uh, younger and less knowledgeable, I thought that was the easier path. And so I launched a services business focused on delivering technology services for small to mid-sized organizations, helping them with their technology. Now we'd call that a managed services provider or you know an IT outsourcer. But back then, you know, when the in the early 2000s, it was all just sort of coming together. And that was my first business. Nice. Uh, Dave, what when you tell me what this is a weird question, but what did those wonderful folks do to drive the business to the ground? Because we could all learn from that, right? Because a lot of the folks are either, either tech leaders in my, uh, you know, my audience, or they're entrepreneurs that own their own businesses. Yeah. So the, the first company was too much about the technology and not about business outcomes, right? So it was all about being smart consultants and not enough about making that relevant for businesses. We did some cool projects. I mean, I did, did early e-commerce stuff, made to order plastic delivery stuff. Nice. That business got, got bought by GE Plastics when, when we built them with their website. We did some really cool domain name service you know, consult all kinds of cool stuff, but we weren't 
great at tying that back to business outcomes in the first business. And the second one was all about market timing. That one was, you know, it was a good idea. We were in the pharmaceutical contracting space, helping bring large pharmaceuticals together and do e-commerce and do their negotiations online. But it was way too early. They just were not ready for that. And so the salespeople couldn't sell it and couldn't get it into enough of the right people. You know, we had one big first trial customer, but when it didn't get any legs, we stuck around at that a little too long. Have you seen companies win from that? Have you seen, because first mover advantage is not always a thing. Sometimes it right. is too early. Have you seen companies, This is I'm going way back, right? Have you seen companies do what that second company did and succeed based on better timing? Not not particularly. Like I, th I think it was so early. And in particular, I mean, only now are we starting to see some of the problems that we were addressing in terms of smart contracts and the ability to make that fully electronic come become realized. You know, we had really early ideas on the way that was all going to be done 20 years ago. <laughs> and, e and only now are we even starting to see the bits of that. I think if we were to launch, if I was to launch that kind of company now, the pieces are much more in place. But we were dealing also with really large incumbents that are very slow to move. Got it. That's Dave. That right there, we already have a lesson, right? Because when I invest in startups, I, yes, I want to see a great technology and a great technologist founder, but I want to see either a co-founder or a really, really great sales hire. Because you can build an incredible company, but if you can't sell that product, no one's ever going to see it, right? And no one's going to mm -hmm. ever understand it or buy it, and you're never going to be able to raise the type of money you need to, to see real traction. The part that's really tough to put a lesson to is the timing game. That's a really tough one. Any thoughts on that? You know, you, you, you got to try. Right? <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, the, the element there for me is, is, is about, uh, you know, you've got to identify more than just one customer that may be your buyer and not just this vagary of like a whole large market space. In fact, I usually get turned off by people that tell me their market opportunity is essentially everybody or is close yes. to it. I want you to be as specific as possible and narrow that down so that you know exactly the buyer profile. And when you can do a good job of identifying that, you've actually probably told me that you're good on the timing because you know the kind of people that'll do it. And if you're sort of hand-waving and trying to gloss that over, you're missing a piece of the battle for me. So no global uh, $100 billion TAMs, right? We need no, to we exactly, need a very well, exactly. small, like, narrow. Yeah, small and narrow. Because by the way, small and narrow usually is a little bit complicated and thus profitable. Like, I like hard problems. That's where money is to be made. If if yes. it's a sort of like, well, everyone will buy this. Actually, no one will buy that. Good point. If you're all things to all people, then you're you're nothing, right? You have nothing right. for for the folks that actually. Or need maybe you. playing in a commoditized market, right? I get really I get really worried when it's something like, well, of course everyone will have that. Well, why wasn't everyone have that now? Like, there's just all kinds of concerns when it's that big. It you know, and everyone likes the really big examples, right? Like they they always come like, well, you know, everyone wants one of the really big tech companies. It's like, well, yeah, assume you're not that. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. David, uh, tell me a little bit more about the MSP world and when is it the right time for companies to implement it or have an MSP provider? Tell me a little bit about your world. 
Yeah, it's 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 a fun, diverse, weird world <laughs> that is generally small business, right? And and I I tend to like I'm a you know I'm a small entrepreneur. I am not the kind of person that loves working in businesses that are super practical that build people much more than necessarily. I don't need it to be a hundred million dollar, a billion dollar business. Most businesses aren't that. In okay. fact, eighty six percent of the managed services provider world does less than ten million dollars in revenue. Wow. It's it's a small space. I always describe to anybody who's interested in this space, spend the next two weeks asking every business you work with who helps with your technology. Okay. Ask your lawyer, ask your dentist, ask your doctor, ask the guy who works on your car, ask that like ask who helps with your technology, and you will get exposure to the managed services world. Because all we talk about all businesses being technology businesses. Well, somebody has to help them. Right. So these are generally small consulting organizations that are generally engaging on an ongoing basis. The idea behind managed services is that they'll come in and they'll deliver a set of services to keep that technology engaged, functioning, secure, all of the bits, and generally delivered on a monthly recurring basis through some kind of contract mechanism. Right. You there you, if you've if if you're trying to engage with somebody, it's best done on a recurring basis. All of us in business know we like recurring revenue businesses, right? They're good, good kind of customer retention business. So it's, it's a hybrid of doing services, but also doing it in that contractual way. Love it. What is um, a type of company, a use case of yours that drives you crazy because they're the ones that need it the most? They're the ones you can help the most, yet they refuse the services because it's costly. Tell me a little bit about what your thoughts on that. Oh, it's it's there are so many of these because it's it's oftentimes people that are just looking at it saying, well, we just need to barely keep the computers alive. And, and any of us in the who played in the managed services world who who deal with with kind of real difficult businesses know the little mom and pop where the computers are sitting on the floor, they're a little too old, they're a little too dusty, and then they're complaining that everything is running slowly and they're they're not able to get their work done. Well, yeah, because you've spent no time or energy investing in this stuff. No wonder it doesn't work very well. And you haven't unlocked any of the possibilities. But more importantly, you've always viewed it as an expense, not as an investment. Technology is an investment. When you do it right, I'm going to spend a dollar to get a buck 25. Wow. Like I'm going to get enablement of a way that I'm doing it. But when I do it right, you know, by by actually making sure my systems are pro processing well, and I've taken inefficiencies out of the system. Ideally, connecting it to some kind of e-commerce for whatever that means for your business. Doing you know proper data protection so that I'm not actually having to spend money on ransomware and all that extra garbage. Not having to worry about extortion. Like all of doing that right, it takes discipline and time, and money, and, and resources, money. <laughs> and the, the right yeah. ones. Well, but but again, I look at it and say it does take money. But again, any business owner will tell you you'll spend a buck to get a buck twenty-five. If the technology is a proper investment, it can be absolutely linked back to the core mission and drive of whatever business you're serving. If it's a doctor, I want to make sure you're serving your patients efficiently, the mo maximizing your time, not being wasteful. You're a lawyer, making sure that the information is available quickly so that you can serve more customers, deliver more billable hours. If you're selling widgets, whatever the widgets are, I want to make sure that the technology helps you sell 
10% more widgets or opens up the market to new opportunities. Like maybe you go, you know, not just local, but you're going national, like you're able to sell online. Like whatever that is, we should be able to link the technology back to whatever business mission you've got. And you do that through connecting, I'm, I'm guessing, with different partner companies as well. Well, so when, when I was an MSP, like the idea really is, is you go deep with your customers. You've got to be a business partner and you've got to understand what they do and how they do it. And you've got to understand the intricacies of their business. And there's a lot of sort of business consulting that goes along with that. So that you're then tying it all together to deliver technology services, solutions. Now, by the way, there's some baseline stuff that always has to be done, right? We've got to make sure you've got proper internet connection, that your data is retained very well and backed up and manage. We've got to make sure everyone's these days has basic systems like email and, and the, you know, the component in document management. There's a lot of this stuff that's component, but then it gets layered on with the really valuable stuff, which is working with you on your business productivity layer, whatever that means to your business. Nice. You know, over your career, long career, you work with, uh, you know, worked at level platforms, solar winds, big vendors, right in this space. What shifts have you observed in kind of the the vendor consulting landscape over the last few years, especially? It's really fascinating to watch as many of the those vendors have become more and more mature, and they grew a lot faster particularly than the the people that they were serving. So again, back to my sort of statement, 86% of this market is doing less than $10 million in business. A lot of the software vendors that are serving it have gotten much larger than that. But they grew up alongside them, right? So if we, if we go back really far, right, you get companies like Microsoft, who are a key part of what this space does. Of course, they're massive, right? But even the, the, the businesses around them have also gotten to be really large size. You know, I worked for I worked for SolarWinds for a while, particularly in their MSP group, you know, but we came up through acquisition, right? We, the, I started with a little company called GFI. You know, we were 500 people when I came on by the time the acquisition and merged in with other stuff and rolled up. When I left Solar Wins was 3,200 people. Uh, wow. That is a much larger organization than the people that we're serving. And, you know, there's certainly value in, in scale, right? I, I mean, and obviously to the owners and all of the bits that it come from the, from the money-making side, but there's obviously benefits in terms of business operations at scale. But when you are a little bit different from your customers, and in particular that transition from founder-led to, you know, to, to organizationally-led, you do have to work harder on the translation between what founder-led organizations are looking for versus that organizational structure-led organizations are. It sounds like that that you kind of distance yourself as a as a company as you scale from understanding the problems of these small businesses. It's kind of what you're getting to, right? Or you have to be much more systematic about it because mm-hmm. because one of the things that's interesting, you know, I love playing with founder led companies, right? Because because they look a lot like me, they feel a lot like me, but they're mm-hmm. also you you get a certain benefit of just dealing with other founders and two founders talking automatically feel like very similar because they share same of the some of the same struggles but when you do get to a certain size and scale you've systemized a lot that's great you've brought in lots of specialists you have a management team but you oftentimes have you're exactly right have lost some of that touch so it isn't instinctual now, good organizations will invest there so that they make sure that they are have a system to address that and people that are, d- are devoted to that and an investment in valuing that. But where we find the risk is the ones that have sort of wandered from that and lost touch 
with you know the customers themselves. Dave, you mentioned um, it sounds like you've been through a few acquisition, a few M and A activities. Can you tell me a little bit about that? And where were you? Were you selling? Were you acquiring? Tell me a little bit about that. Those two uh, sides. done a bunch of it. So even back to when I was an MSP, we acquired another MSP. Okay. Uh, it was a freaking disaster. <laughs> I, I made all the mistakes. I, I did such a horrible job on due diligence uh, and made, made a ton of mistakes. But then I had the opportunity. I sold my MSP too. So I sold to another MSP and I took all the lessons, the screw ups of the acquisition and it did it right on when See? I sold. Even that was an investment. Oh, totally. You, you got to learn all the way. Every single time you got to learn from your mistakes, pick yourself up and try again. What, what were some of the lessons? What were some of the screw ups and what were the lessons? Actually, next so time the, the, the biggest one was just not spending enough time on the people side of things, which was ultimately everyone looks at these M&A deals and they talk so much about the Excel side of things, right? Like the, the contracts, yeah, the math. Yep. Yeah, how it all works in, on paper, right? Like, and, and that's where everyone does this. But ultimately, the, the make or break on M&A is about the people and the culture. If you can't bring the people together and integrate two disparate organizations to become one organization, and I don't care how you describe this, it's a new thing on the other side. You know, it is probably, the, the there's always an acquirer, right? And then there's always, regardless of whatever they say about two equals, there's always somebody on top. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, that, but the new thing that's created is always new. It's always a little bit different. And so you've got to make sure that you're bringing all of the right stuff together from both orgs, the value that you're acquiring and retaining all of the stuff that made you good before and this is all people and culture all of that huge all huge. Of my mistakes boil down to that you know you ask what i screwed up like oh i spent way too much time worrying about the contracts and the numbers and the and making all the math work on this and i didn't spend nearly enough time making sure that the people that i was onboarding were cultural fits that they actually were were, were correct people to fit into slots that were built for them, that they were comfortable in, that they were empowered to leverage, that I was acquiring the right people, and that I didn't disrupt my existing organizations by the change that were happening. And I screwed all of that up and I made a mess of things. And Dave, that honestly, that's a very complex thing to, to, to wrangle, first of all. So I don't blame you for screwing that up. And you're absolutely right. When you hear M&A attorneys, which I've had on my show, or you, you read books, it's all about the numbers, getting the deal right, making sure you don't get screwed either side, and maybe that, that's the easy bit. That's right? The easy it bit. sounds like it. I mean, <laughs> honestly, up until this point, I've, I've, I've seen my companies get acquired, but that was when I was on the corporate side, and I wasn't really a big enough player to matter uh, as a senior director or whatever. But thinking about acquiring other companies, that's that's a lesson for me right there because you're right. People focus. All my uh, think tank groups, they always focus on getting the deal right. I've never heard the cultural stuff come up. That's actually a really great point. So it's important for you to, especially if you're, if you're, if you're acquiring this company for its people, for the knowledge right. base, if you screw that up, you've bought nothing. Maybe you've bought you've some bought, contracts. Hey, It'll right. all disintegrate around you, or you'll make a mess. You'll you'll start slowing down your own operations. Your own people will start having your teams will be distracted with the integration, the new culture, the HR, the integrations, all of that stuff. I mean, I smile and go like, of course the lawyers say how important it is, but you know what? That happens on the first day of the acquisition. They're all gone. Yep, they got. They're not the ones. They're doing the work of pulling the two organizations together, and that's where the rubber meets the road. It's all successful there. Really good. And by the way, this is also why. 
why in some cases in larger deals they keep they operate very independently, right? You may own it in a in larger deals they'll buy somebody, but it's a wholly owned subsidiary and it's left alone. Like that's an intentional choice to not take on that work. It's very smart. That's cool, but that's a that's a strategy to mitigate that. But you still have to manage that, right? You still have to have the communications between the two organizations, and you've got to have the alignment and the value if you're going to try to grow together. My favorite, Dave, is is now I see press releases that come from my uh, uh, client success managers, and they're like, "Hey, I think uh, I think our client is now partnered with this one company." And I read the press release, and it's very confusing. And at the end of the day, I'm like, "You know, that's an acquisition." <laughs> right. They just they just acquired that company. They acquired our client or vice versa, but they they make it look like it's a partnership and that it's not an acquisition. I don't know why, but I'm seeing more and more of this partnership scenario play out. It's usually a minority um cap or something like that, right? There's an acquisition right. of a piece of the company. Um we we kind of covered that, but I want to be really specific. If you can give us three really, really, really important steps we need to take when we when we approach integrating a newly acquired company, particularly in the tech space or tech services or whatever you want to call. Give us three right. three main things you would do, you know, uh, day one or whatever. People, people, people. I mean, I kind of have to laugh and go like, so, so I would spend, for, for me, like, don't get me wrong. I think it's important to make sure that the deal makes sense. You're only going to do it when when it makes financial sense. When you the, when the two one plus one really is three, That's you've got to pre. do that math to make sure that that makes sense. We got that right? covered. We got the pre right. covered with our attorneys and all of our friends and all the knowledge. Great. Right. So now, how are you going to deal with the people? Yeah. Like now, like and, and I really so you, you asked for three. No, no, no. It's one. Like, how are we going to pull the people together? What is the new the new structure look? How are people empowered? Are they clear on their mission? You're going to over-communicate, over, over, over-communicate on what we're doing together and why. You know, what the, what, what the end state looks like, how we're going to get there together, how we're going to leverage those pieces. For me, the ones that I've found, you know, that I've been involved with or also analyzed, where, where the leaders lean into that communication are the ones that end up proving to be successful. Because because it's hard, and, and in the in the absence of information, people will fill it in, and it's oftentimes with a more negative version that Absolutely. does not align with your vision. And so, so for me, it really is about building out that integration plan that focuses on people. When I when I sold my my MSP, you know, and again, small deal, right? So this is not a you know this is not massive organizations coming together. This is you know all in that you know small business kind of space. We went full open kimono on everything from the beginning. No secrets, even before the, the deal. Well, only when we were, even when we were in the portion of just doing disclosures, it just became, you know what, we're going to just go full kimono. You can know everything you need to know about the organization, all the financials, all the details, all the people. We're going to have detailed discussion about who the people are, what what they bring to the organization, how they're valuable, how they're not. And we're going to talk about what the integration plans would look like as part of the deal. Love like it. we discussed that as part of the deal integration, who would be the kinds of people that we were, that they were looking for when they, when they finished it out, who would be getting jobs as part of that, who would not, why they were not, why they were not a good fix. They had an opportunity to talk to everybody. And I, people look at me funny when I'm like, yeah, of course I did because I wanted it to work. My, the value of the deal, particularly in my case, which had some payout component to it, in order to hit those numbers, it had to be successful. So we had to go really detailed into all of those pieces. Dave, three things I was thinking as you, you were talking about this stuff is one, you talked about transparency. 
Huge, huge, huge. You're right. Most people don't know anything. And, and it's, you know, our staff starts creating their own illusion, illusions of what's happening. So I love transparency, communicate. During COVID, during that uh, kind of uh, recession and during this existing recession, I've been incredibly open and transparent with my staff and it's created so much trust and no worries of what's going to happen because they know what's about to happen. I always mm -hmm. tell them what I'm thinking is going to happen and how we're going to be okay and how we're going to deal with it. And I always follow through with the same mechanics and it's really created a trusting organization. So I love that. Two, you talked about the mission. What hit me is you talked about a mission, but there's two missions have now merged and your mission for your organization might have nothing to do with the acquiring or acquired company. So understanding their mission and speaking their language is extremely important. Three, on my recruiting side of our, of our business, th one of the main reasons people leave jobs is, hey, my company was just acquired and culture has changed and we can see layoffs coming. Mm-hmm. So again, lack of transparency, lack of trust, lack of knowing what's happening has created the worst of it, which is people thinking their jobs are on the line. So they leave, even though their jobs might not be on the line. In fact, maybe they've had incredible opportunities for promotions and more opportunities and growth to be part of something better, but they're not thinking about those things. They're thinking about, I used to like my mission and culture and, you know, colleagues and manager, and now that's and changing. It it's yep. time yeah. to move on. So I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. You've pretty much covered it already. Oh, that's, I mean, you, you've totally hit the nail on the head, and that's the way that I think about it. And by the way, when I look at M and A's, I talk about that stuff way more important because that that's where the rubber hits the road. I care about the deal, you know, a year, two year, three years later. You know, like it, it's that that's where I want to see if it's successful. Oh. I mean, and by the way. I will always celebrate an entrepreneur and exit, right? Like at the, at the moment of those kinds of things. But by the way, most of the, a lot of times the entrepreneurs are out the door. They take their money and they run out the side door and good for them. And I applaud them and selling yep. the asset. But if I want to judge the success of it, I need to look at it two or three years later and see what the combined entity has done post acquisition. Nice. Love that. Um, what inspired you to start the business of tech podcast? It's a, it's a funny little story. So, so I had my 10 years running MSPs and then I worked for, as you mentioned, I worked for a couple of software vendors. It was another eight year run uh, with a couple of different vendors uh, going through that process. We delivered software to the MSPs and helped them run their business. Ah. Uh, and so I'd spent a lot of time both delivering the services directly and building products and involved with the building of products that helped them. And I looked and I said, you know, I think where I can spend my time is on the bit that I've always been pretty good at, which is looking at trends and looking at, at what's going on in the market and identifying what matters and what doesn't for those that, that are that is important like which are the bits that are going to be something and which are the ones that are not particularly to the vast majority right and what I mean by that is is like the typical small business clients that we talk about nice. we in tech love every flashy new thing but you know what most of them don't matter they just don't they just aren't a thing and you have to take a good discerning eye at that. And I sort of said, I think I can take that 
ability that I've got, a pretty reasonably good sense of the ones that matter to customers and the ones that don't. And I can apply that to the news. I can start saying, delivering insights to those MSPs and IT services companies going, all right, this is the stuff that's happened in the last day or two or three or four, whatever, the last couple of days. And I'm going to analyze them and I'm going to say, these are the things that that, that I thought were important. And in every every segment, I do a piece called, why do we care? which is to take those stories and I then say, this is why I picked it or what I think is important or what I'm getting out of that story and what I think the opportunity is. For example, I like to talk about AI, right? And I, I've been talking about a ton of AI recently. But I'm also looking at it saying, okay, I think these use cases are interesting because I, here's why and I can think I can tie this back to business outcomes and here's noise. This is noise. I can't tie it back to a business outcome. So I think that's one to ignore. And I think that curation has some value. And I also don't mind saying, like, you know, I'd been on the vendor side for a little while and I understood what this audience wanted to hear. And I saw the business opportunity to address that with those insights and monetize, you know, sell some ads to those audience and people would listen. Dave, uh, you took the words right out of my mouth. The, the fancy, shiny toy right now is AI. Everyone's looking at it, and it's no longer about big tech companies who are AI companies. Now we are all feel the pressure. Uh, you've got a little bit of FOMO if you don't inject AI into your company. Tell me, you said something brilliant. You said some sometimes they just don't matter. Tell us where it should matter to a not a mom and pop, but a growing but smaller business, uh, and where. What should they do with AI right now? What should they be looking at? What should they be researching? Not over reacting and, and spending a bunch of money on something that may not matter, but what does matter and what should we all be doing to make sure we stay relevant, we stay ahead of the game a little bit without uh, losing focus on what really matters, which is our day-to-day -day business, our staff members, our clients, and of course, our families. Right. This, this is, I love this space because it's exciting and it's a technology that I can actually see use cases really fast. The reason I got super excited by, by what was happening was, I mean, I like everybody else, I watched ChatGPT. But what I was really interested in was the quick user growth and the high retention of those users. For me, that was the quick thing. Right, was the that okay? Now I can see that people are using this practically in the field. And that started I circling, okay, where is this being used? And what I'm finding is is that the philosophy that seems to be working best in both the use cases and my approach to it is thinking, I don't think AI is going to replace people's jobs. I think people might be replaced by those who understand AI. I don't think you can take use AI and take someone who has no experience and give them AI and instantly they are a guru and useful in that job. But I think you can take people that have skills and you can amplify those skills by injecting artificial intelligence into it. So for example, the most, the most interesting study I've seen recently, and I covered this on my show, was the increase in positive outcomes for radiologists using AI to find cancer in cancer patients. They saw a 20% uplift in the discovery of, of uh, cancer in those studies. Interesting. You can't tell me that's not an incredibly compelling business reason. That the, is amazing. We can, right. We can arm radiologists with this kind of technology. We can help them find faster and more reliably than humans on their own. Great. I, I love like that. It. 
So, I love it so as well. So we're looking for things that do that. You know, I don't. I, I look and say like the people that are taking marketing copy and just having the, the machines generate it. So you've just created bad generic marketing copy. But what I can do is I can take writers and I can give them an infinite capacity writing partner to work with that they can bounce ideas off of, that they can create first drafts, that they can create versions of their content that they can mold much faster. Agreed. That increases output and they can be do much better job applying their own skills to it. And so you start looking at that and you can say you can take each of the various industries that you work with and say, how can we do that. So for example, with lawyers, right, let's help them have not only their army of paralegals, but an infinite capacity par paralegal that has all of the information that they've ever worked with that can also answer questions and get them information faster. And everyone goes, you know, I smile, everyone smiles and goes, well, you still have to fact check. Yeah, you've always had to fact check. Anybody that does their job correctly has always had to fact check it. What we're talking about is getting to from first draft to initial to, to second draft and third draft faster so that we can produce more. So we can do it with doctors. We can do it with lawyers. We can do it with technicians. We can make sure that the infinite capacity uh, advisor is available with all of their service manuals and they have access to that stuff. And you can apply it to all of the various industries and accelerate people. And those are the use cases that I'm looking for. It's why I love this space right now, by yeah. the way, is because it's exactly what I talked about in terms of service providers helping their customers with technology. It's kind of customized. You kind of have to do it bespoke to an organization, and that's awesome for complexity and for a profitable business. I agree. I think one of the, the biggest things I've seen for my business is getting small tasks off the ground faster. That's it. For example, mm -hmm. I write for uh, Inc. Uh, Entrepreneur and now Forbes Technology Council, and one of the biggest things I've always struggled with, unfortunately, I haven't used this tool yet, is getting things off the ground, mm -hmm. right? And if I have something that's just there for me to start with, and even if I edit the thing, it ends up being nothing like it started, it gave me something to work with versus writer's block where you're staring at something, like creating a job description from scratch. My team used to really struggle with that. Take them a week to create something simple. I'm like, come on, we're hiring a admin assistant, guys. Come on, it's not that hard. Uh, but now they can create that in half an hour or half a second, frankly, edit it, play with it. Hey, is this pretty good? Yes, no, change it up. Boom, it's ready to go. And we can get that off the ground. I think that's where I see value. And that's created zero uh, want for me to reduce my staff. Zero. Uh, it's just the people doing yeah, it are able exactly. to do simple tasks like this they don't love doing faster, getting it off the ground and making an impact on our business. So I agree with you. At least not yet, it won't re replace us. Maybe in five, 10 years, we'll see. You know, anything five or 10 years out, if crystal ball is cracked and gray oh, yeah. and not perfect, let's not worry so much about that. Now, I will always say, like, I want to want to think about it in large societal terms. Like, I want to have conversations about that and the impact to uh, the way it might change the workforce and what we as society should do. And I think we should have healthy conversations about that. But in terms of business applications... That is, those two are two separate conversations. Agreed, agreed. 
Tell us a little bit about your book. Uh, you had somehow the time to write the book, Virtualization Defined. What's it all about? What's the uh, intended audience? And uh, how the hell did you find time to do it? Yeah. So th- this was this was during my MSP days. You know, when when as we were moving towards the cloud, there was a lot of interest in virtualization. And for me, it was you know it was again a, a flashy technical subject that I was interested in. Had spent a bunch of time doing and implementing with customers, but too often I didn't hear enough of why we. Would we do it, and what were the business reasons to do it? And so I sat down and I iterated, you know, over time with working with my own customer base to come up with examples and what I thought it would be. And I outlined in the in my book, you know, a bunch of ways of applying it. And it was focused again on the small business consultant who was looking at that technology, particularly at the time, and the way they wanted to apply it. And you know, now I would would, would take that kind of content, and I'd be creating videos, and I'd be creating, uh, you know, much more micro content. But at the time, I wanted to sit down and write a book about it. And so that was the way that I approached it. Weird question, but you might have some insight on it. Just months ago, everybody was talking about diversity and inclusion and all this. And it seems like no one's talking about it, which is surprising. Uh, What does the data say about diversity among leadership of IT services company? What are you seeing out there? Yeah, I do it. So on the podcast, we continue to do a, a quarterly survey where we actually go out and we look at all the websites of, a, of about 300 and some companies and look at just about 4,000 individuals across technology companies to do an analysis to try and understand what's going on from a diversity perspective. Um, and what we're finding is that it's not really changing. Um, that the that the market is is pretty consistent in terms of the way that it breaks down. It's uh, l- less than two percent black. It's about less about roughly twenty percent female. Uh, and no matter how we slice and dice it, it doesn't really change. The only thing that we can sort of see from a difference is larger publicly traded companies tend to be slightly more diverse. They can get up as high as sort of twenty five percent female uh, in terms of their representation, but but it's not changing dramatically. And for me, the, the interesting thing is, is I, again, I always like to tie this back to business outcomes, and I keep finding more and more research over the past four years we've been looking at this and three years we've been doing the data, where anytime we make investments in diversity, those companies outperform. Of course. it's a, it, Well, we say, of course, it's data-driven, but I look at this from a data-driven perspective. All of the research says that it, but the, the organizations that do that will have a 10 to 15% uplift in terms of their profitability, their growth. Like, there's all kinds of reasons to do it. Yet they aren't doing it, right? And that's that's the interesting sort of dichotomy of this is is if I told you, hey, you do this thing and you'll drop 10 to 15% to your bottom line, I would like to think most business owners should would do it. And so I keep highlighting it because I think this is an opportunity not only to do something that for me is the right thing to do, but it also then you represent, you, you are better communicating to your customers because you represent them more. You have different viewpoints that then allow you to serve larger customers. Oh, and by the way, the data then drives you to a better outcome for Love your it. business. Love it, Dave. And that's my favorite. I think people do it for the wrong reasons and they don't get the kind of ROI that they're looking for because they're not doing it for the right reasons, which means it's not sustainable, which means it's not real. You have to do it for the right reasons. What a great way to end it. Guys, go out, get yourself uh, a lot more diverse. You will love it. First of all, you're going to love your, your, your culture because it's diverse and it represents the world we live in. You'll have a lot more fun, and frankly, it'll drive, the data says it drives profitability, which is frankly what businesses are looking for. Dave, you've been incredible. Uh, We're out of time, and I've really enjoyed having you. We should do this more often. Anything you want to leave us with? 
Oh, anytime. I'd love to come back. You know, the, the, if it, people are looking for what I'm up to, please catch me on the Business of Tech podcast. It's, you know, five to six minutes a day, and we ask story, cover stories and ask the question, why do we care? It's easier to find on any of the podcast platforms. I love it, Dave. See you soon. Thanks for having me. Bye, everybody. And that brings us to the end of another great episode of the Tech Leaders Playbook. I want to thank you for joining us and hope you took away some valuable insights to apply in your professional journey. Don't forget to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you don't miss out on the next great conversation. I promise it'll be good. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you could leave us a review. Your feedback not only helps us improve, but also help others discover the podcast. Better leaders mean better working environments. Better working environments leads to happier people. I'm Avita Santablian, and this has been the Tech Leaders Playbook. Keep leading, keep learning, keep giving, and I'll see you on the next one. Until then, stay inspired, my friends.